Hi, this is Nicole Kelly, and this is She Brew in the City. If you like what you hear and want to hear more of it, you can subscribe. And also follow me on Instagram at She Brew in the City to see what my life is like day to day. I'm also on Patreon if you'd like to have access to some special episodes and offers. Looking for tips and tricks on a new city? Top Dog Tours is the best place to check out walking tours. We are in Boston, Philadelphia, Toronto, and New York City. Visit us on topdogtours.com to book your tour today and check us out on social media for offers, discounts, and pictures. Hi, this is Shebrew in the City. I'm Nicole Kelly, and today I am talking with Pam Wisnitzer, who is a master mixologist and Instagram influencer. She's laughing. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Pam. How are you doing today? (laughs) I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Like I said, I'm tired, but that's kind of par for the course. I feel like that's just my answer every day. I'm always tired. I think I was born tired. <laughs> That's completely fair. And it, it is a Monday morning. So it is true. you are allowed to be tired. And it is Hanukkah is coming up. I know we're going to be releasing these all over the place, but it is the Monday before Hanukkah and we have lots of events. So I'm sure... That's part of the reason I'm just emotionally exhausted <laughs> from preparing yeah, for absolutely. that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big week. You yes. Know? Uh, gotta, gotta get ready for those eight crazy nights. At least I know when it is. My mom, I guess, Googled when Hanukkah was and for some reason didn't look at the year that came up. And she thought it was starting later because it starts later next year. So so she was a little stressed about having to get like all my daughter's presents together and shipping them and everything. So Oh, I'm, no. I'm glad that... Yeah, that's- <laughs> That Jewish calendar just doesn't like to keep put each I know. year. It's Next year, I think it around. starts on Christmas Eve. It ends in January, which I don't think it's ever been in January in my entire life. So I don't know if it... So my bat mitzvah was December 28th of mm. of, of the year of... Ma, 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 ma. Yes, but, yes, yes. Um, but um, it was the fifth day of Hanukkah. Oh. So that year, I think it ended on the 31st. Okay. So my 30th. So that that's the closest I can recall, but that was, you know, um, obviously that's ingrained in my head. <laughs> I, you know, the year thing I was called, called my mom last night because I was doing math is next in March of 2024 will be the 25th anniversary of my bat mitzvah. Wow. So I was like, I, gotta, so. I was like, I got to do like a special episode about bat mitzvahs because of my uh, my uh, big anniversary. Um, so let's go ahead and get started talking about you. So Pam, where are you originally from, and how did you end up in New York City? Um, yeah, so I was born in New York. I was born in Queens, uh, but I didn't stay there uh, when I was just about two and a half years old. We moved to Cleveland, Ohio. So I grew up in Shaker Heights. Um, a lot of people recognize it from that book, Little Fires Everywhere. If you've heard that before, yeah. So that's this my suburb. Um, and then I came back to New York for college. I went to Barnard College and the Jewish Theological Seminary. I did the dual degree program because I thought it was totally normal for an 18-year-old to be having like seven to eight classes a semester. But I found out later that wasn't true. It's a lot of schoolwork. It's a lot of school. But I was like, yeah, double bang for your buck, two degrees for the same price. So what's better than a good than a good bargain? How was that? as far as like your actual social life or being able to even do anything, taking that many classes? I didn't know any different. So I had a very robust social life. I was out all the time. I just, I thought it was normal. I had no idea my other friends just at Barnard or Columbia were taking four classes a semester. Yeah. So that, that really blew my mind senior year. I was like, wow, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, that's a very full load. 
So yeah. uh, what was it like growing up uh, Jewish in, o- in Ohio and what was your Jewish upbringing like in general? Yeah, I think a lot of people are not aware of how robust the Jewish community is in Ohio. Um, I actually was talking about this with somebody yesterday and because someone was like, oh, Cleveland, that must be like a small Jewish population. And I was like, no, it's totally the opposite. At one point when I was younger, Cleveland was the fourth um, highest donating uh, federation, you know, just to give you an idea across the country. Um, So I grew up in a suburb that was really diverse, Mm -hmm. which I'm grateful for. But we were surrounded by other suburbs that were very enriched with Jewish, um, Jewish culture, Jewish community, like right next to ours. So I don't know. I was, I was in this wonderful bubble of the conservative movement. I'm pretty much your poster child. So someone's like, what's the conservative movement look like? It'd be like me on a poster with like my hand up saying, hi, I'm from the conservative movement. I, I went to like synagogue every weekend. I was that kid in front singing in Kelohenu at the end on the Bima. I, um, I did USY and Kadima. I like had leader, massive leadership positions within there. I, went to camp for mom. Mm. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I went to Barnard and JTS, like anything that is associated with the conservative movement. I did it. Um, so yeah, you know, we kept Shabbat in my house every week. It was really beautiful. It's how I learned how to cook. I would like make Shabbat meals at a certain age. And my mom would let me take over and do that. And, uh, Judaism was just really, you know, I went to Jewish day school until eighth grade. Then I wanted to go to public school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really very much infused. It's like in the core of my soul. That's like how I, how I know the world. I know the world through a Jewish lens. And I think that's really beautiful. Would you still consider yourself conservative? Do you belong to a synagogue here in the city? It's so funny because I I do consider myself conservative, although I don't practice in the same ways. I, I don't belong to a synagogue. I think I find a lot of people who are not married or with families around our ages don't really belong where, but I do love going to programming and holidays at Sutton Place Synagogue. Mm-hmm. I really love what the rabbis do over there. I love the programming. They're they're so welcoming and I spend all my high holidays there. So that's been really that's that's been a really lovely community to be a part of here in New York. I think you're really right. It is kind of hard to find like a home base. There are a lot of 20s and 30s young people programming all over the city, but a lot of it's tailored to like families and the family unit. We didn't join a synagogue until we had a daughter because it's easier to do your own thing when you're just an adult. But when there's a kid, it it changes. Yeah. And I I think we're making better efforts to creating opportunities for adults who are between like 20s to 30s and early 40s if you don't have a family to be a part of that. And there's definitely wonderful organizations like MJE, I think does a really fabulous job. Um, there's a lot of really cool, like the, there's a center down in Tribeca that does cool programming. But, you know, I think a lot of things change when you have a family. They, they, a <laughs> lot of things, including life cycle events. Yeah, I definitely, we I, the episode we just released was kind of like my interview and talking about how just even finding my way back to Judaism in general was a thing that happened when I had my daughter. So it makes a lot of sense. So how did you get involved in the hospitality industry? When I was at Barnard and JTS, I actually was signed up to take the Columbia Bartending Academy course. And it's just this course that teaches you the basics of bartending. And back then it was not as robust as it is now. And if you place at the top of it, you can then get jobs like bartending around the city, like small jobs, like pouring wine and beer at places. Mm -hmm. So I took the course just for fun because my friends taught it. Um, I didn't think anything of it. This was the year 2006. 
six. Oh my gosh, sorry, I didn't mean to give dates, but here we are. And, <laughs> that's fine. That's the year I met my husband. I'm so old. we're not judging how long things ago are. are Good, here. <laughs> great. Um, and I, I did it just like for fun, and I really loved it. I latched onto it pretty quickly. But I think at that time I was, you know, in college, we were all drinking, so it was like fun to know how to make a French martini. When I in the recession of 08 and 09, I lost my job and I was trying to find some quick employment. And a few of my friends knew a manager at a bar and they're like, Hey, you could bartend if you want on the side. And cause I knew how to, and I was like, okay, so here's like, here I come out in this, this world with like two degrees from two like really wonderful universities. And I like already had some, a year and a half of like corporate work under my belt. And I go into daytime bartending and my parents were just <laughs> I don't want to say they were livid, but they were pretty shocked. <laughs> uh, it, you know, and I think the other big part is that in the Jewish world, we we see a lot of people who cook. We don't see a lot of people who work in booze unless it's on like the managerial sides of it, right? Or owning only liquor brand or working mm-hmm. for a liquor company. Um, you don't really see a lot of people bartending or being owning bars. That's not really been in... That's not really in the Rolodex of the careers <laughs> that we used to <laughs> Doctor, lawyer, teacher. Doctor, bar- lawyer, bartender. Yeah, bartender. Um, yeah. So I always joked that my mom would go to synagogue and they'd be like asking how everyone's kids are. And someone's like, David's doing great in medical school. And so it's like, Sarah's loving law school. And they're like, how's Pam at the bar? And my mom's like, over here a little bit like it's such a, a Shonda, right? Like a shame. You know, it's um, funny that you say that because my great-grandmother – who lived in Ohio actually owned a nightclub and bar. Yes. So th- this that. was this was in the 30s and it was actually in a black neighborhood so they catered to a lot of the black community. So it was very it was kind of crazy and my great aunt has stories of sleeping in like the front window where the police would make sure everything was kosher and stuff. So she comes from a long line of that. Her mother actually owned a tea room in Russia. And my great grandmother would smuggle alcohol on the train so that the tea room had liquor. So there are at least a few Jews who were involved with owning bars. We absolutely do have like a very dynamic and rich background and history of owning of owning venues. You know, it's just like over the years we've it, things have changed. Yes, a, for a lot, sure. I'd say. And so that was really fun. You know, it, I laugh a lot as to where I was then and, and about how I came about into this. But I just started daytime bartending and. I kind of parlay that into a bigger career in mixology and beverage consumption, consumer engagement. Here we are today. Daytime bartending is very different, I would assume, than nighttime bartending, especially depending on the neighborhood that you're in. It is. But what what people forget about daytime bartending is it's really about the care and consideration of the people who sit with you because a lot of them are there for lunch, lunch with like a drink Mm -hmm. or early drinks after work. And they want to talk. So for me, it was this really incredible experience of meeting people and providing ultimate hospitality, especially because we were like next to a cancer hospital. Mm. We were in an area with a lot of like construction. So we had a lot of construction people. So we had like a really beautifully diverse range of individuals who would come into our bar. Um, And sometimes I really kind of felt like I was Sarah with the angels. And I was just like here to like make sure you're like, you know, you're doing well here. I'm going to like serve you, make sure you're you're feeling great when you walk out the door because you get more time, which is really unique. That makes a lot of sense, which leads me to another question I had. I was going to ask a little bit later, but you kind of already talked about it. You know, a lot of people sit behind a bar just literally to have someone to talk to you. Why do you think that people traditionally feel really comfortable opening up to bartenders? 
Well, I think it completely depends on the bartender. That this is a great question. A few reasons I think you know, depending on the person, alcohol can create a sense of ease Mm -hmm. for some people. So, for those who need a little bit of liquid liquid courage, uh, that can kind of open up the pathway. If you have a really great bartender. A bartender doesn't only want to just give you a drink. They want to make sure you're having an experience. And so mm-hmm. it's very genuine. Um, and and we are, we're energy readers, right? So we see how you come in. If you're feeling like you have a big load on you, if you have less stress, like we're here to de-escalate that. We're here to, you know, make sure that we turn that around before you leave. So when you earn somebody's trust, they want to open up to you immediately. And also a lot of people who come to the bar, especially like certain hour, hours of the day, sit solo. They're not, mm-hmm. it's not always like two people coming together. When you sit solo, you're kind of looking for any experience to interact with another person. So when you give them an inch, they might take like a few more inches or a mile if you if you let them. So that, I think it, I think that is the those are the biggest components as to why you'll find people opening up to bartenders. So you're working as a daytime bartender. At this point, did you start experimenting creating cocktails, or did that come later? Yeah. So initially I was just your vodka soda, Bud Light girl. (laughs) And I got really good at serving (laughs) those quickly. Um, But there was this really incredible wave of mixology starting to happen. I feel like a lot of people remember in like the 08 to 2012, we had this, what we call like the second golden age of cocktails that a resurgence where people were using fresh juice and fresh, uh, fresh ingredients. Um, There was a lot of innovation happening. It's when the big speakeasy movement started. Um, Mm. And I remember, I remember being very interested in all of it. So I would bring in my own ingredients to the sports bar and I would make these cocktails and I get in a lot of trouble because <laughs> no, no other bartender could recreate them. But I was, I was having so much fun because I, I could do things on my own time. And I remember seeing this amazing magazine article in Time Out New York where they were like the best bartenders of New York. And I just remember seeing on the cover all these men and one woman. Her name is Megan Dorman. She's a friend of mine now. And... I thought it was so atrocious that only one woman was on there. And I said, there's no way there's only one woman. No way. They just probably didn't do their due diligence. And I also looked at the picture and I was like, I could get in there. I could do that. Like if they can all do it, I can do it. So that was kind of the catalyst that, um, that lit a fire under me to, to start studying and learning and uh, get involved in that, that area of, of the hospitality world. Why do you think that at least back then, I, I can't speak for now, um, it, it, such, it was such a male-dominated field or male-forward-facing field? So many reasons. Um, number one is that a lot of the women who worked in bars worked at high-volume clubs and bars. It's like places where you like burn and churn and you make a lot of cash really easily, right? Um, so they weren't working at like speakeasy bars. There were actually a ton of women who were, um, but you know, we love to showcase the men. We love to like ignore the women and showcase. So there were really brilliant, brilliant women like my friend Natasha David or Aaron Reese um, who were definitely at the forefront. My friend like Lynette Marrero, um, where they were all out there, but they were being completely overlooked. Um, I think the other part about it that we still don't speak about, and even to this day, is that um, if a woman wants to go ahead and start a family, um, being pregnant and being behind a bar, people do it, but uh, it gets hard at some point. And then yeah. when you have the child, it's all about like, do you have enough childcare? Can you actually work long bar shifts anymore? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people transition from being a bartender into bar owner, a manager. 
So that's why maybe you would see during that time less women um, there. And also we've beefed, we've beefed up security. I think it's the other part to have like a woman close down a bar or work the latest shift. Um, you need to make sure that that place is very secure. I hadn't even thought about that, but that makes complete sense. Um, do you do you find have you found within your career that there were challenges you faced as a female bartender and mixologist? Uh, when I started, I was in my twenties, and so I think my my biggest difficulty wasn't just the fact that it was a room of men, but it was a room of older people who didn't want to take me seriously. So I would like be butting my elbows into a space with people in their like thirties, forties, fifties, and Mm-hmm. They half the time wouldn't give me the time of day or wouldn't take me seriously, which was unfortunate. Um, I I have not found as much as many issues with men in the industry. In fact, like I, a lot of men have been insanely supportive of my career. A lot of men have been my mentors. Um, I've always been a guy's girl. So maybe <laughs> that's also a different part of it. Um, but my biggest thing is in getting into spaces, I just wanted to ensure that I threw that rope back for more women to then come into the space. So if you can wiggle yourself into a little bit, you can throw that rope back and then start bringing everybody else in with you. So I love um, that and analogy. No, yeah. Yeah. So at least for me, it was, it was, it was okay. I mean, there was this mean boys club at one point, but I, I turned it on them. So. <laughs> I love that you kind of came in and created a space for yourself. And like you said, kind of our left left space for women to kind of come in behind you. So you have a master's degree in food studies, which I did not think was a thing, but makes complete sense now that I know it's a thing. So what inspired you to go back to school and get your degree? Uh, did you have to write a thesis? What type of classes do you take for a degree like this? So NYU has the leading program in food studies, um, undergraduate and graduate level. And uh, it was... 2011. And I, I wanted to take bartending and mixology very seriously. And I thought for to show my parents that the only way I could <laughs> earn their trust was by going back to school, which is it's very Jewish. It's so Jewish on so many levels. They're like, I gotta prove it to you. You know, it's it is it's like the ultimate like Jewish guilt, right? Yes. Um, so I yeah, so I applied to the program because I also wanted it for myself. I wanted like I wanted to show people it wasn't just an interest or a hobby in this. It wasn't just a career, but it was academics and education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted that backbone. So I went into the program and I did a, like a focus on beverages. And um, for my thesis, I actually spent the summer of 2014 driving all across America because I wanted to learn how and why people drink in different parts and regions of the country. Um, Interesting. What's, what's being offered. Yeah. So I had a road trip that was about almost three months long, 40 cities, uh, it w- it was a wild experience. I've never driven the country before, uh, which I suggest every person in this world should do. It's, America is truly beautiful. We don't know it. I've never done it. My husband's done it twice. Oh my God. <laughs> he, it's great. He had to bring furniture across the country and then a car and he's gone the Northern route and the Southern route. So, and I can't, I don't like being in a car for more than like six or seven hours being from LA and his family was in the Bay area. We do like up and down California a lot, but I kind of hit a wall. So I feel like I'd need to make a lot of stops if I ever drove across the country. Yeah. And actually, if you did that, like six, seven hours is kind of like max per day. Like, trust me, I pushed it some days to eight or nine, but you can do it. Anyone can do it. And I just highly suggest it. You learn so much, not just about yourself, but like about other parts of this 
country and the people and the communities. And I, I wanted to understand that because coming from New York, uh, which is most of my life and then obviously Ohio, I haven't, I spent time in some other cities, but not significant time. And I wanted to really mm-hmm. see things differently. Is there a place that you found that people drink drastically differently than, you know, here or Ohio or other major cities like Los Angeles or Chicago? I wouldn't say anybody drinks drastically differently. Now, remember, this was nine years ago. So a lot has obviously shifted in the country. But what is telling is that um, it's the age ranges of who's drinking, what they're consuming, Mm -hmm. um, and the rate at which uh, the rate of consumption. But there's a lot of other factors that come into play, including is there mass transportation available in those cities, you know, because the driving culture and then obviously it's going to affect things. Um, uh, I found that careers like the the top top careers and industries also affect how people are drinking and demographics of age so it, it was truly fascinating but there's some really cool spots around the country like i went to um boise idaho that has a huge basque community and basque like cuisine um which i had no idea about and they had phenomenal cocktail bars <laughs> so that was pretty that was pretty rad I would have never other never gone there otherwise. It's so interesting you talk about transportation because I'm originally from LA, but we moved to New York before Uber and Lyft were a thing. So when we first came to New York, first of all, the idea of bar hopping is not really a thing in LA. You kind of plant yourself and you're like, because you don't want to get in a car, you couldn't drive. So when we moved here, it's like, oh, we're going to go to like four different bars in one night. Like what is, you know, you go down to the village and kind of just go around to places. So that was weird. Also like the idea of buying rounds became was like really a thing here where it's like, well, I'll buy at this bar and then you buy at that bar. Whereas in LA, at least when I was younger, it was like, we all paid for our own drinks. And then going back to LA after we have now like Uber and Lyft, it's changed so much. I remember there was one Halloween when we were in college, we wanted to go down to West Hollywood for the parade and we couldn't find a cab. Like we were calling cab companies. So like, it's so interesting. You know, I, I guess it makes complete sense that transportation would play a huge part in, you know, drinking culture and how much people are drinking and where they're drinking and the proximity to where they have to get to. That's so, that's so interesting. Was there, yeah, absolutely. Was there a place that you, maybe not that people were drinking so differently, but like a very unique drinking culture somewhere in the United States? A unique drinking culture. That's a fabulous question. Um, I mean, I, I definitely, like in parts of Texas, I mean, you know, that's obviously like margarita land. It's very, it very was it was more agave focused than anywhere else before tequila and mezcal like really sprung up around the world. And that has everything mm-hmm. to do with obviously the Mexican border. But they've always been at the forefront of like Mexican flavors and cuisines. And so, I mean, while the margarita has nothing to do, honestly, with Mexico, it was an American invention. Um, I didn't know it, that. Oh my gosh. When was the margarita yeah, invented and where? The margarita, they don't know the exact date, um, but they do know that um, because agave spirits, I think, came into America around like the 1950s and nobody really knew what to do with it. What was big at the time, people were making sidecars with cognac. So someone's like, okay, okay normally cognac is a, some simple syrup, um, lemon juice and cognac. So if I kind of change it out and I use tequila, they will do like lime and they use like a triple sec or sugar. They made that drink and margarita means daisy. So they called it a daisy because a daisy is the category of sour drinks. That's what we call sour drinks. They're called daisies. So naturally because margarita is sour and it 
takes the shape of a sour style drink. That's the name. I, uh, so that's really <laughs> what came that came out of America, clearly, because they drink more like Palomas down in um, Mexico than they do margaritas. I think that's so American that we're like this thing that we're passing off is from another culture, but was really created like here, kind of this inspiration from maybe, you know, immigration and um, you know, kind of oh, creating yeah. don't even something. don't even get me started on Cinco de Mayo. Like you don't have to go there on this <laughs> Cinco podcast. Cinco de Drinco. Like, yeah, it is one hundred percent American driven. It was created by beer companies to sell more beer. They they only celebrated in Puebla in all of Mexico. Like we should not be celebrating it here in the United States unless you have like a, a community of people who are like from Puebla that want to like do it and you celebrate with them. It's kind it's of awful. how I feel about Oktoberfest. Like we visited Munich and we went to the Hofbrauhaus and a lot of other breweries and they're like, we hate Oktoberfest. It's a bunch of drunk American tourists. And, yeah. you know, someone, we had an employee from Germany that was like, if you want to go to a beer festival, a lot of the smaller towns in Bavaria are better than Oktoberfest. So, and, and also leave like- it, Leave it to America to ruin everything. Of I course. know. Like that's <laughs> what we're good like at. Drinking, it's fine. It, we also have the best holiday in New York City santa con um <laughs> which if you're not from new york city uh santa con is a holiday where the bridge and tunnel people who we, those are the people who have to take bridges and tunnels into the city they dress up like santa and they start drinking at like 9 a.m and just they're on the trains and they're running around the city being obnoxious and i usually try not to work that day because <laughs> it's literally the worst day in new york city have you ever bartended on santa con Okay, so a few things about SantaCon. When SantaCon was first started, it was only a handful of a few hundred people. And I know this because I was there during the very beginning before Time Out New York covered it because I had friends yeah. who went. And the idea was people who came together, you would like carol in the streets for people. You would bring food that would go to like a, a hunger drive. As, like, bars so it was actually like a nice food. thing to start with. <laughs> <laughs> totally was nice. And the idea was just like a few hundred people. And it was to give an influx of money during the daytime shifts to bars. Oh. So they would and, and you were and they would kind of give heads up to the bars ahead of time saying like, we're going to bring these people and uh, and there was like all these rules like don't don't be don't be a dick, you know, don't you know, yeah. be nice. You, and that was the idea. Like we would all take a picture together somewhere. Then the young people really like super found out about it and it all got ruined. I, I turned into what it is now. But of course, that's very normal. Um, so yes, I have partaken in SantaCon <laughs> when I was really, really young. There's pictures of it. I, some people found them and they still make fun of me to it today. I have bartended during SantaCon. Um, I think at the end of the day when it comes to this, and by the way, this is not just in New York. This is in other cities. Um, when you see SantaCon, just run the other direction or yeah. keep yourself safe. Um, and if you happen to be in a bar where anything like that hits, just always look at your staff and just ask them, say, are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, that's, that's the best that we can do. I'm obsessed with the fact that this started out as like a charity thing and kind of became yeah. the worst day in New York city, which is Word. saying a do, lot. Cause New York is kind weekend? of just like, I don't, I hope not. I think it's the ninth. Um, I'm That's not, le- I'm not leaving the Upper West Side then. Um, so, but I, <laughs> I'll be, I, I'll be at a bat mitzvah in Omaha. So I'm going to, so you're good. Year. So you're good. You're good. I just, <laughs> thank goodness. I'm obsessed with that. It used to be something like quaint and adorable and it became, uh, kind of crazy. Do you have a favorite cocktail to make? I know you started out, you started out making a lot of vodka sodas. You said at, like, as time went on, you know, was there a cocktail that became your favorite to make? Uh, is it a cocktail you created? I, 
when anybody asks me this question, I always say, and it's not even a blanket statement, it just is true. Like my favorite cocktails to make is the one that the guest wants and the one that makes them happy because there's nothing, there's really nothing better than someone sitting at your bar and talking through what they might want, making them something based upon their, uh, their parameters and, and desires. And then you put it in front of them and they, they have this big, huge grin on their face because they just feel like so special in that moment that you actually listen to them or gave them something that they liked. Um, so those are my favorite, those are my favorite moments. And I think that's like, I honestly think that's one of the best parts of bartending in general. I love that you keep bringing up hospitality as an actor. I worked in restaurants for years and there was one, uh, concept. Do you remember Blue Water Grill in Union Square? Yeah, so I worked course. there for RIP Blue Water Grill. That building is still empty too, by the way. It, <laughs> uh, there's nothing there. It's kind of crazy. Uh, so they, they talked a lot about what they called second level service, kind of going above and beyond. And I love that you keep bringing this up because I think for a lot of people, you know, I, we've all been to restaurants, you know, that where it's just like, this is clearly just a job and people almost seem to be hating their lives a little bit. But I, I love going to restaurants where people are providing that hospitality and really doing something extra to take care of somebody. You know, I, I, you know, I think it's amazing when people make this like a legitimate career and they're they, the idea of hospitality and that second level service. I love that you keep bringing that up. Yeah. I just, I, it's very easy for any job to be a job. Yeah. It's very easy. And I'm not here saying that like when you work in hospitality, especially service oriented positions that you have to go above, above, above and beyond because there could be a level of like abusiveness that can happen between, you know, guest exchanges. If, you know, something's taken, you know, taken advantage of or out of context, or yeah. if you feel like you have to do something because you're doing it for a tip, that's a whole other, that's a whole yeah. other conversation. Um, however, I love people. Like I really love people. I've always loved people since I was a little girl. Um, and I think the part about hospitality that I enjoy the most is the opportunity to make someone's day just with a little bit of kindness. Cause if someone, someone could have the worst day in the world, come into your bar or restaurant, you just offer like a, a smile and like a little bit of kindness and it can change everything. And it doesn't take much. Kindness is free. That is, I love kindness that. I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. Kindness is free. I think we need yeah. a little more kindness, especially with everything that's going on right now. You know, oh yeah, it's it's a totally. crazy time. So, yeah. so your favorite cocktail to make is whatever would make someone put a smile on their face. Do you have a favorite cocktail to drink? I am a I'm a, a situational drinker, so drink based upon where I am, uh, which is great. I don't I don't ever like really navigate towards one thing or another. But if I had to like round out a list of top faves, I'd say it could be like a Negroni. A 50-50 gin martini, meaning it's like half vermouth, half gin, which is great because then you can have more of those because you're not going to wind up on the floor as easily. <laughs> um, I really love grasshoppers, which is like this creamy mint drink. Uh, you kind of can only have one of them, but they're worth it. Um, and this uh, tropical drink that's called the Jungle Bird that a lot of people don't know about that is absolutely divine. When you're off the clock, is there a specific bar or restaurant you like to visit to go for a cocktail? When I'm off the clock, I wouldn't say that there's one place that I'd like to go to. I think there are definitely certain bars and neighborhoods that if I'm ever around that area, I like to pop in, even if it's just to say hi to the staff. Um, I sometimes like to do that, but I don't have like a, a cheers moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't have a place that is just my, my cheers. Um, because I do like to like, just what I call like distributing the wealth. Um, I like to ensure that like, if I have a dollar, that I am very conscious of where that dollar is going to go. And I, is it worth going to the same place over and over? Is there a new place that just opened that you can support, get to know the people, especially if it's in your neighborhood? 
Um, is it woman owned? Is it um, is it minority owned? There's there's a lot of opportunity to invest our dollars in really phenomenal ways. So you've worked at a lot of different concepts. Uh, is there a bar or restaurant that really stands out to you in terms of a good experience working there or a great ambiance or some really great ownership? I uh, There was a bar that was on the Upper East Side. It's no longer around. It was called Seamstress. Um, it was open for about three and a half years. And it's funny because so many people still to this day come up to me and like they'll see me randomly and they're like we really miss that bar or I think about that bar all the time and it really was it really was um it was such a big moment for the Upper East Side because we didn't have a cocktail experience up here and so it was kind of like one of the first cocktail like really high-end cocktail bars and it was really comfortable and wonderful and um I led the bar program and our staff there was about like two or three iterations of our team and our staff like we just really were a cohesive unit uh, and it just, it, you have to be careful about using the term family because not everybody attributes to working in staff as family. And that can be a little dangerous, especially as people have different relation with family dynamics. But we all felt we were like a family unit in some ways. And we're all still very close. We have a text thread that's like five years strong. That we all, we're, everyone's highly successful now doing different jobs, but there was something really special about that. Um, I've met a lot of people who were like, our first date was at Seamstress or we got engaged at Seamstress or all these really hysterical stories that even to this day I get from random people, which is great, or DMs in my Instagram inbox. Why do you think the Upper East Side doesn't have a lot of concepts like that? The upper side has changed drastically in the past 10 years, um, even the past five years. And we do now. Now we actually have like a decent amount of like really good cocktail bars. I think, you know, as the Second Avenue subway opened, as we had an influx and change of who was living in this area, we finally were able to get a lot of really interesting venues, restaurants, businesses to start opening up here. So now I'd say I'm, I'm really proud, like we were not the East Village or the West Village, like with that high amount of concentration of bars or restaurants, but we do have a lot of our own. And so if you wanted to just stay here and like not go downtown, you'd be very happy. And that makes me really proud <laughs> you know, to, to be able to, to see to concepting like that. Do you, are you also a wine drinker or you, do you stick strictly to cocktails and spirits? I love wine. I love wine so much. And I have a lot of friends who are sommeliers. So it's a very privileged position to be in, to be surrounded by some of the, the most brilliant wines. Minds. Um, and I've been fortunate to like go to lots of wineries to meet the, the winemakers themselves around the world. Um, I think wine is such like a beautiful process um, and a really beautiful industry. And I think there's, I think it's changed drastically <laughs> in the past um, 10 years. And you see, it, wine wine feels cool. It used to feel really stuffy, um, and now there's there are so many people that are changing that um, that stereotype. So it's much more accessible. It's younger. It's fun. Yeah. Um, so I'm very grateful uh, for that for that change up. I'm a wine drinker. I'm not really a cocktail and spirits person because I like sweet stuff. And a lot of people kind of stray away from sweet cocktails, so there um, there aren't always a lot of options. My husband is a cocktail drinker. He experiments with making cocktails. He loves drinking cocktails. Great. We have the hugest we have the hugest personal bar because he's a member of a liquor club, so he gets 
with this membership, a lot of bottles and tasters. So it looks like we have a literal full bar in our apartment. It's kind of crazy. I get it. I have over 700 bottles in my apartment because it's essentially so my work Where do studio. you keep all of that in a New York um, apartment? I've got three three racks, uh, wire racks that are just full of alcohol wow. on one wall in my apartment. Yeah, but it's my office. Yeah. So I pull from that when I'm experimenting or working on any concepts for clients. No, that so, makes You know, some sense. people... Some people have, you know, file folders. I have wine bottles and like spirits bottles. <laughs> I think wine bottles and spirit bottles are much more fun than having a filing cabinet like I have sitting right next to me. <laughs> it's just different. Speaking of, you know, wine being fun and things changing, do you think American palates are becoming better or different over time? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, the American palate has definitely shifted over the past 15 years. Uh, the biggest change that we've seen is um, the American palate gravitating towards bitterness as a flavor, mm. which is something that's very keen in Europe, especially obviously the Italian areas. Um, and that has a lot to do with travel as America has become, America has become like pretty obsessed with travel um, and yeah. ex- exploration. And obviously the younger generation, it's at the forefront of, of their you know, favorite um, pastimes. And yeah, people spend, that, I, it goes like household things and then tr- experiences as far as like spending. Yeah. And it's great because what it's doing is it's diverse, like diversifying the portfolio of things that we're eating and consuming here in America. Um, we're having more global access. So one, so bitterness is a really fascinating flavor because while everything else we are kind of born with, you know, sour, sweet, umami, savory, salty, Bitterness is learned. You're not born liking bitter things. You have to actually train your palate to like it. Um, so when you taste something that's bitter, um, when you're younger or even like, you know, mid twenties or something, like you may not like it. And you're like, this is gross because you actually have to keep going back at yeah. it in order to start understanding it and train your palate to like it. So that's why a lot of people, when they have an Amaro or something like Campari or a Negroni, they don't like it initially, mm-hmm. but after a few times you start craving it because you develop bitterness. So that's been something that's very fascinating uh, here in America. Obviously like the Aperol spritz is a great example of that. Um, My husband shaking be- his head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's like, this all makes sense. And then we also have, are getting um, drier palettes. Now this depends where you live in America. There are definitely places that still skew towards sweeter profiles, but a lot of places that used to be like, Oh, like, more sugary, more sweet drinks. Like now you, you see drinks that like people want things that are more sour, drier, less sugar. And a lot of has to do with also the health and wellness movement of how people are eating. So as you change your eating habits and what your body craves, that will change up what you desire also for what you're drinking. So if you are cutting out more sugar, you're not going to want to crave that in your drink and you're going to want to crave other flavors. So it's been a, yeah. And also we're seeing less drinking. And that's also really amazing. The low proof, no proof movement is pretty strong with these days. Hmm. So you talked about having all these bottles in your apartment to create new cocktails. Can you walk me through the process of what you need to do to create a new cocktail and how long that takes and, you know, all, what goes into all of that? Yeah. It, um, firstly, there's nearly no such thing as a new cocktail because everything follows the same format. There's like six formats of cocktails. And from there, you kind of make changes and tweaks. Um, so you can't ever say like, this is brand new original, but, uh, 
the most important thing is understanding and identifying the main flavor that you want to highlight. So I often I often start with an ingredient or a flavor or a concept or sometimes a color, and then a I work co- my ooh, way I love around the, that. I love the color thing because I'm such a visual person, and the way yeah. a drink looks, I'll never forget. I, I this is a little off topic. We were I don't remember where we were. We were like somewhere in the West Village because I wanted to go somewhere for my birthday, and there was like a cocktail place. Or no, no, it was going back. So there was like a tea place and they also had cocktails and there was glitter in the cocktail my husband ordered, like literal glitter. And we were finding glitter on him for like four days, which never put glitter. Please don't ever put glitter in a cocktail because first of all, it arrived. We were like, what is this? You can, but you have to put a tiny amount. It was not a tiny amount of glitter. It was not a little, it was not a little bit. So I love that because I'm such a visual... People love people love um, fads. That yeah. was a big fad a few years ago. Was it really? And yeah, it was a big fad about like four or five years ago. It started where like edible glitter could be put in drinks, but yeah, people do it in the wrong capacities or, or they make it overwhelming. Yeah, it was a little too much glitter. But I love that you see, you're like I start with color because I think that you have like very strong reactions to certain the way certain things look. So I love that that's kind of like a base sometimes. Yeah, aesthetics are a huge selling point in a drink because half the time people will be in a bar and be like, what's that? I want that. They don't even care what's in it. Um, but you eat with your eyes. First, <laughs> we true. always eat with our eyes. That's why we love food television because even though we're never going to eat the thing that's on there, we can experience it in the same capacity and believe we can smell it just because of what we see, hmm. which is fascinating. Um, so yeah, so I always start with that. And then I work my way around flavor um, like flavor profiles and things that work together. Um, I love using the book. If people don't own it at home, I highly suggest getting it called the flavor Bible. Um, You can buy, I think it's for anyone who cooks, anybody who likes to make drinks. It is fabulous because what it does is it dissects the main ingredient that you're looking at. And then every ingredient that that correlates with it, then the ones that are the strongest and then ones that are like a secondary. Um, And then you can start creating what I call like triangles of flavor. Cause when you can get three flavors that link up together um, and work in a drink, you'll have a much more dynamic flavor profile. Huh. So this is what you get when you get a master's in food in food studies. You get very <laughs> scientific because it is it's 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 science. Like creating food and baking and cocktails is is chemistry. I think I think Absolutely. that's there's that show right now with Brie Larson where it's something like something chemistry, and she's like a chef. I watched the whole thing. Was I it good? The whole thing. Absolutely fabulous. I love this lessons in chemistry and I love it. And I also love it because it it relates and correlates to a lot of um, beverage making because we do use science all the time. And it's ironic because science is my worst grade at <laughs> <laughs> school. And I use it all the time. And I also use science as a way to explain how drinks come together. I teach a lot of cocktail classes and I always go back to elements of math and physics and other components of science because that's what it is. So you ever tell your your parents this is a very Jewish thing? It's very scientific. It's <laughs> yeah. I I always go back to my parents. My parents are very proud of me. I need to put that forward. My parents are so proud of me. They're so proud of my career. They um they love to brag about me in shul. You know they they talk to all their friends about it. It's it's very different now, but um I I I feel so fortunate for their love and support as I took a very different pathway. Mm-hmm. That obviously was very scary, but uh, it, they believed in me and I wanted to show them that I could live up to their expectations of what they would have for me. Are your parents big drinkers? Did you grow up with them trying cocktails and having alcohol in the house? I had no alcohol in the house. We my are parents are just, my parents are like that too. Really? Yeah. We, 
we had this liquor cabinet that was just where my dad had was entertaining fellow doctors. Like they would sometimes have little club, like clubs that came over. Mm-hmm. We had no alcohol. The most we had was my uncles would get together and have like kiddish mm-hmm. on uh, Saturday. So to those who don't know, like after synagogue, sometimes you make kiddush and kiddush is like the prayer over like the wine or you would have like a little schnapps or something and they mm-hmm. call it kiddish, kiddish yeah. club. So my uncles would get together and they would like drink Crown Royal. So that's like what I remember most as a kid. And also oh. like any of any of the leftover purple bags, like we would get to put our toys in for synagogue. <laughs> so there's something really nostalgic about it. When I see like purple bags, I'm like, oh, it's a it's a toy bag for synagogue. Yeah. I mean <laughs> Yeah, my parents weren't aren't big drinkers either. So, you know, it was I never really had like direction as far as like what what I wanted to try, which leads me to my next question. If someone just turned 21 and they're interested in trying cocktails, what would be your advice to them? I love this question. Mazel especially on be- 21. Especially because you said that your taste changed. I feel like that's how I felt about beer. I used to hate beer and now I'm a huge beer connoisseur and I love beer. Yeah. So I, if you turn 21 and you're going to start having drinks, I think the best thing to do is to sit at, sit at a bar and have like maybe two, three rounds. Like it's so good to start slow. Um, and I would get one thing that's stirred, one thing that's shaken. So shaken is probably gonna be something that has citrus in it. So you're going to get like a sour style drink. You're going to get a more spirit forward drink. So you can kind of see the difference. And then I would get something like completely like off the wall that's on the menu. Maybe it's something tiki and tropical. Maybe it's something creamy. Maybe it's uh, something like smoked. Um, the, and also using having like different alcohols in them. And that can kind of get your palate to understand what you gravitate towards naturally. What was your first drink when you turned 21? Oh, you only want to hear my 21 first drink? No, we can do do both. We can do both. My first, my first drink ever (laughs) was a, um, uh, what is that? Um, the, oh my God. It, you you have like a smear. Oh, yes. So my first drink was like a raspberry Smirnoff ice. Um, well done. So that, <laughs> I am a classy chick and I was not 21 um, and I can't get in trouble for that now. I think I, I was I was 18. Uh, it was so <laughs> I don't remember what my first like legal drink was, um, but I, I started off by drinking with a raspberry Smirnoff ice. Yeah, um, I actually happen to know my first legal drink because I since my birthday is during uh, winter break, I was at home and I had gotten in a fight with my parents. And so the morning after my birthday, I stole the car keys and I left a note and said, went to Columbus and also to see grandma. Don't call me. Be back in three days. Oh, (laughs) probably like most devious thing I've ever really done. Um, and I was with my friends in Columbus and we went to this bar called brothers. And the first thing we did was had, I think we ordered some drinks, but we got around to shots and we got purple hooters, which are disgusting, but I don't, I totally remember that. Um, and we got purple hooters, but my first thing I ever drank, which is, I have such like a Proustian, like Madeline moment with it. I'm very nostalgic for all the time when I was very, very young, maybe like third, fourth grade, my parents let me have a little bit of wine at Shabbat dinner mm-hmm. and it was Kedem's plum Royale wine. Oh. Very sweet, very sweet. They still have it, but, um, there's something in like Japanese culture called umeshu, which is um, a plum, uh, like plum liqueur wine distillate. And it's the exact same thing. And I crave it all the time. That's so funny. <laughs> so, I, I know yeah. someone whose dad worked for Kedem. 
Um, and I believe he had his uh, bar mitzvah on a Sunday because they wanted to make sure that the bosses, like the head of Kadem could come. So like they didn't even want them like doing anything on Saturday night. So it was actually a party on a Sunday. And we drink their grape juice on Shabbat at my house. I have like very... Like, cause that's what they'd serve like at Hebrew school. So it's very nostalgic for me, the, the grape juice. Yeah. So fun fact, and this, maybe this is like a good takeaway for like, if you want one last hot tidbit for making cocktails at home, um, to make a syrup, all you have to do is take a liquid equal parts of that with sugar and mix it together at room temperature. You don't have to heat it up. One of my favorite, 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 um, hacks in making drinks. I always have like a Concord drink, grape drink somewhere on my menu was using Kedem's Concord grape as the base. And I would make a syrup with a heavy syrup. And it is phenomenal, especially if you wanted to make um, whiskey sours, but use like a grape um, syrup instead. It is divine. So if you ever wanted a nice hack to make some great drinks at home, Kedem Concord grape. So talking about, you know, home bars and people drinking at home, what would be some of the staples you'd suggest to someone who is looking to create a home bar, who's interested in entertaining, who's interested in maybe experiencing, experimenting with cocktails themselves? What would be kind of the things that they should get to start their home bar? Fabulous. So if you're going to start a home bar, you need really good tools. So don't just buy any tool set that you see, get ones that are really functional. Like if you get one, one of those has a jigger that has a handle that's not useful. So um, I get a lot of tools from either Barfly or Cocktail Kingdom. Those are really good companies and they're not that expensive. You can also find great full complete bartending tool kits on Amazon. Um, I suggest getting a tin on tin shaker, not like the Boston one, like the really tin on tin. They're easier to open. You can hold more drink in there. And then when you're starting your own bar cart, have one of each bottle as a staple that you would in a well. So vodka, a gin, a tequila, a rum, and a whiskey. Um, whiskey, I would suggest bourbon or rye, and then also grab yourself a, a bottle of scotch just to have if you want for cocktails or to serve to people. And then from there, and also a bottle of triple sec and good triple sec, like Combier Cointreau, not like the really sugary stuff that has no proof level. And then from there, you can make a lot of drinks and please use fresh lemon and lime, squeeze it yourself. <laughs> Don't use the stuff in the plastic bottles. It has preservatives. <laughs> Um, it'll make all the difference. So that's enough of a staple to begin with. And remember, you don't have to spend millions of dollars on the bottles that you're going to mix with. And I have to always stress that. Um, and your drinks are only as good as your as your tools. What would be your advice to someone who's interested in, you know, making mixology a career? I think for what mixology, this applies to mixology or like any um, career that you want to have is... If, if you're going to do something and you see long if you see longevity within the space, apply yourself. Don't just phone it in. Like it's so easy to go to go to the work to your desk and then go home. I highly suggest get involved in other ways, start learning about your community. If there are like seminars and conferences, head there, go to networking events, um, throw yourself into the rooms. I put, extend your hand and tell people who you are, because the more that you can get involved, the more people are going to know your name, the more opportunity that comes around. And especially when it comes to like mixology is it's just constantly, constantly be on like the cusp of learning and of, of what's happening within the scene. Um, and, and just, and be a good person. No one likes a, curmudgeon. <laughs> 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 Honestly, just be a, be a really nice, good person. Um, and make space for others. 
There's room for everyone at the table. There's opportunity for everyone. And when you look out for the other people, they look out for you too. In the past, you've created cocktails that were inspired by your Jewish heritage. Is this something that you suggested or was this brought to you as an idea? You know, how, how has that come about? I think in a lot of ways, I've always infused little bits of my Judaism into my drinks. Um, but I just remember one week we were sitting in synagogue and I was home visiting my parents at home. And in the Parsha that week, they were talking about some a grouping of fruits that they had found. And I remember reading about it and I was like, oh, that sounds like it'd be really good in a cocktail. I remember sitting next to my mom and I said that. <laughs> she goes, what? I was like, that sounds like it'd be great in a cocktail. So I did. I went and I made a drink with that and I was like, oh, this is delicious. So I have, I have found there's so much inspiration because let's get to the core of Judaism, right? Like our holidays are about, you know, celebrating because we survived something yes. or it's a, it's a year and we eat, right? And there's a lot of flavors at the forefront, uh, symbolic foods, significant bites. You can infuse all that into drinks. They're the same staple flavors that work really nicely into beverages. So I try to I try to do that. Like I've made complete liquid Seder plates that I've served at Passover Seder's. Um, you know, obviously when Rosh Hashanah comes around, I love making drinks that I have apple, honey, and pomegranate in them. Um, Tubi Shvat is just like ripe and ready for like so many fabulous drinks, including like olive oil in them. And I think that that's where the creativity and fun comes into beverages because it's such an easy way to give a wow factor to any meal that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes with like minimal work. Um, and that's, that's really the true hospitality behind cocktails. It's creating this incredible, memorable experience that doesn't have to be so laborious on your end. So you are speaking of being Jewish. You're very outspoken about your pride in being Jewish on your online platforms. Why do you think this is so important, especially with everything that's going on right now? I, I was, I've always been like a proud Jewish person, especially a proud Jewish woman, even since I was little, um, the theme of my bat mitzvah was Hanukkah. Like, just, I'm sorry, we, we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, I know. Um, I I think it's just been at the core the core of how I live my life. It's like how I treat other people, the lessons that I learn, the morals and values that I run by, operate by, and so especially in the past, I'd say in my life specifically, the past like six, seven years, it's really come to the forefront of um, who I am in my work. Because I think for a while, especially getting involved in the hospitality community, I put my Judaism on the back burner in order for career, to get career advancement. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't observe some holidays because big things were happening on them. Um, I didn't stand up for myself and speak out about it. Um, and in, I, I, I sometimes often um, say that I'm having like my big Sandy Koufax moment. Yeah, <laughs> Because yeah, yeah. I like, no, I no longer will allow people to um, devalue the importance of, of Judaism and our holidays and our um, the significance of our time. And I, I just think as global Jewry is undergoing um, this huge wave of like anti-Semitism um, and, and fear, it's so important that if you have the ability to have a voice and to speak up and you feel comfortable doing so that you, you do so. And so for me personally, of all things Judaism related, anti- fighting anti-Semitism is at the core of my work um, because I'm unafraid to say that I'm Jewish. I wear a Jewish star like every day. And I, I'm i very proud of what Judaism represents for my, to myself and to so many other people. 
So I just put the two together. So I'm like the Jewish bartender. <laughs> I'm like one of a few. There's a few of us that are very outspokenly Jewish. And so it's, um, it's nice because we kind of like all find each other. So I want to go back to your bat mitzvah. You said your bat mitzvah took place over Hanukkah and the theme was Hanukkah. What was that? Tell me everything I, I want to know. I'm seeing if I can find you a picture um, of it just because it's just that funny, but I'm not sure if I can. So the find theme one and post it on Instagram, like for Hanukkah. I, will. I, I want I, you to I, do that. I always do. So I, you know, everybody else had these themes like, Amy's Amy under the stars at Broadway or like, you know, Rachel, Rachel and, and New York city, the big apple and like David and the NBA. Yeah. And my mom, my mom was on the fifth day of Hanukkah. I am born on December 27th. Um, so my, no one's ever been around for my birthday. It's always around Hanukkah time when you're a Hanukkah baby, you kind of like a lot of you are listening can sympathize and empathize with me because if you're born around Hanukkah, you're like, ah, oh, the presents, wasn't you like it all got compounded together but my mom and dad said to me like they reminded me they're like don't forget bar and bat mitzvahs are about becoming a woman it's about god and it's about you know the next step so my mom's like well it's during hanukkah we should just have hanukkah and i was like come on hanukkah but because <laughs> my brother my brother had my brother's theme was he was president's day weekend so he did like white house and presidents was oh, his whole he's theme. that's gonna be in the book that's going in the book <laughs> So mine was Hanukkah and I, I remember I had this like massive dreidel that you could sign when you came in, but I actually like, I love it now thinking about it. I'm obsessed with that. Also, I really, okay. So I desperately wanted like Terry Macklin was the name of the DJ that everybody had. And I like went to all these bar, but I went to over a hundred bar bar mitzvahs. Okay. Like I was that kid and I want him so bad. And my mom's like, this is about being Jewish. We're booking the Yiddish cup klezmer band. So I had a klezmer band. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I did Klezmer Band. My bat was during brunch time. And um, and then the theme was Hanukkah. So I think this like really sums me up very well as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually am so grateful thinking about it now in hindsight. Um, uh, I don't know. I was just in an event with Susan Alexandra, who's this amazing designer, yes. jewelry bags and stuff. She And she has a Judaica line. She just did a Hanukkah party where she debuted her menorahs. And there was a, a comedian there. And he's like, what was everyone's? Um, theme for their Brian Bob Mitzvahs here. And people started yelling it out. And I go, Hanukkah. <laughs> the guy's like, wait, what? So I don't know. I'm pretty grateful though. Uh, you know what's... Because it's my favorite day. <laughs> you know what's really funny is I had a daytime party and my mom's MO was always kind of like, no one sits around and talks about their bar about mitzvahs. I'd rather save the money and spend it on your wedding. But I feel like all I've been doing is talking about people with their bar and bat mitzvah themes. <laughs> And I'm kind of obsessed with it because it's different than a wedding because you can really go like full on theme. And I think it says a lot about like you as a person and where you were at at the time, depending. And some people like the theme is just Jewish. Like I talked to one of the to a rabbi who was like, we didn't have she was a twin. She's like, we didn't have a theme. You know, it was just like bar mitzvah. B'nai mitzvah was the theme. Um, yeah, but- <laughs> it, it, it's wild. And also the Adam Sandler movie that just came out, like resonated super hard with me. And I, <laughs> I, like, wait, I was great. visiting home when we watched that, my mom, my sister and I, and that scene where Adina Menzel and uh, the younger daughter are arguing about what she's going to wear was my mom and my sister, because we were also conservative. So you had to cover your shoulders on the bima. And my sister was like, I don't want to wear this like little suit outfit that was very popular in the nineties. So it was very, I felt very, we felt very seen. We felt very, Oh seen. my God, me too. I actually went home and I, I found my bat mitzvah outfit and I tried it on. I was like, this still fits. Wait, should I be 
taking this back with me. This is iconic. <laughs> I was a size so. like double zero at my bat mitzvah, so it would fit maybe oh. on my arm. I was like, oh, I looked like a Q-tip. I was like super thin and had very big hair. Um, oh, I had already <laughs> gone through that phase. So like I, my body had like already like kind of changed a whole bunch. So, you know, but I, I can't wait for for this next uh, part of, the, of your podcast. Like you're going to have a whole other one that comes out just discussing bar, bar, bar mitzvahs. mitzvahs. I know. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people would love to talk about their bar, bar mitzvahs. Um, yes. So you co-authored a book with Thea James. Can you tell me about how that came about and what the process of writing the book was like? And yeah, I, my we, husband doesn't, my husband doesn't know about this book. And I think he's going to nerd out a little bit when you explain yeah. what it is. It's a great Hanukkah present because it costs $18. Ooh, very auspicious. Yeah. Um, so the book is called Drinking with Wizards and Dragons. Um, it is a fantasy-oriented cocktail book. So Thea James is a Hugo Award-winning author. She is one of the, like, the foremost authorities in everything fantasy and a bit of sci-fi. So she's written lots of other books before. And she did one about cooking, like cooking with dragons and wizards. So they wanted one about cocktails. Thea and I share a mutual best friend. Her name is Leah Doyle. And Leah heard they was like, I need a mixologist who would kind of like get nerdy and want to do this with me. And Leah's like, you should meet Pam because she's really nerdy when it comes to dissecting drinks. So this was a really fun collaboration. They like laid out all of these like books and what she wanted done. And I knew, I knew a good portion of them. So some of the drinks are, some of the drinks are things you've seen before, like a martini, but I really wanted to make sure we had staples in there plus new drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted classics and new ones, but you know, like I really like my butterbeer recipe personally. Mm. Um, this was such a fun, a fun task. And also most of the drinks can be made non-alcoholic through using non-alcoholic distillates and non-alcoholic beers and wine. So uh, if you've ever wanted to put mead in a drink, <laughs> if you've ever wanted to like, kind of think about like the Sandman and like all of his associated like siblings and like what they would be having, this is the book for you. If you could bring a drink from any sort of fandom into reality, would it be that butterbeer or would it be something else? I mean, I think butterbeer is super fun. There's, there's something called giggle water that is around and giggle water. Actually, there was some form of it that existed around like in the 1920s. We're not entirely sure what was in it. There's like posters for it. Um, But you know, that would be fun to like kind of bring back like full time and figure out like what, what it completely is. But I, I think there are so many f- flavors and foods and things that you see in these books. So it's really fun to bring it to life. My my personal favorite was making things for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So we took like, I took Turkish Delight and turned it into a drink. For me, that was exciting because that was one like the first fantasy-esque books I read as a kid. I also tried to look for Narnia through the back of my closet at night times after my parents <laughs> put me to bed. And I never found never it. Never found it. No, never, so never weird, found it. So weird. But it never happened. <laughs> so... Is there anything else that you want to talk about or I guess plug any, you know, concepts you're working on? We talked about your book. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have some things in the works, which I can't fully discuss right now, but I, I would say like, stay tuned, like follow my Instagram. Um, a lot of the things that I do, I put on my Instagram and I know that like in the past few months, there's been a bit of a pause of con- cocktail um, mm-hmm. content and creation uh, as I've used this time to be more outspoken about anti-Semitism and also some things that have happened in my personal community um, around Islamophobia, um, anti-Muslim hate. Uh, so I, I care so much about the well-being of our communities. Um, so <laughs> I know that I will be getting back to more heavy uh, cocktail content. Um, but 
there are some things in the works. There's, um, you know, some really cool projects I'll be um, attaching myself to in the next year and then 2024. Um, and more than anything, I just, I really want people to, to drink well. <laughs> I want everyone to, to be sip, sipping something delightful. Well, with the holidays coming up, I'm hoping a lot of people will be imbibing in a responsible and fun way. Absolutely responsibly. Uh, so this next section, these are short form questions done in the style of the actor's studio. Um, so they don't need to be long answers. Uh, what is your favorite Yiddish word? My favorite Yiddish word is fakakta. It's a good one. What is your favorite Jewish holiday? My favorite Jewish holiday is Hanukkah. If you were to have a bat mitzvah today, what would the theme be? <gasps> I keep Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah I keep Hanukkah. I, I still <laughs> love it. And it would be around the time of my birthday anyway. So like. I love this holiday. I love everything about it. And I, <laughs> except I would have more latkes and sufganiyot than I did at my bat mitzvah. And I would like, I do some Hanukkah related like games and things. Mm-hmm. I would, I would lean in hard into the theme. What profession other than your own would you want to attempt? If I wasn't a mixologist right now. Um, and I think just because I actually recently met him in New York, um, I'm so interested in the position of public advocate in our local government. I just mm-hmm. met Jermaine Williams. And I think the idea of relating and speaking to the community and the people um, is really incredible and fascinating and empowering. So I would probably try to go that avenue. If heaven is real and God is there to welcome you, what would you like to hear them say? It's me, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> that is... That is uh... <laughs> A very fun pointed <laughs> reference. <laughs> I hope people understand that. If they don't, I got it. I got good. it. So I appreciated it. I'm sure at least you know a couple other people will. If not, just Google Alanis Morissette God, and yeah. you you can watch a, a very fun movie. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. If you're interested in learning more, you can follow Pam on Instagram, and uh, she's got some great information about Judaism and cocktails. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much and uh, happy holidays and, and thanks for having me. Like what you just heard, subscribe, and you can make sure that you don't miss any of our episodes. You can check out our Patreon where you'll have access to special episodes and offers. And I'm also on Instagram at Shebrew in the City if you want to follow along with my everyday life. 